Hello everybody, I'm your host Howell Curtis and I'd like to welcome you to The Space Industry by Satsearch, where we share stories about the companies taking us into orbit. In this podcast, we delve into the opinions and expertise of the people behind the commercial space organisations of today who could become the household names of tomorrow. Before we get started with the episode, remember you can find out more information about the suppliers, products and innovations that are mentioned in this discussion on the global marketplace for space at satsearch.com. Hello, everybody, and welcome to today's episode of the Space Industry Podcast. I'm joined today by Stefan Frey, co-founder of SatSearch member company Vioma. Uh, Vioma is a European company that's developing solutions to protect space assets. This is a really interesting and an increasingly important topic in the industry, and uh, I'm quite excited to get into the, into the detail of this with Stefan today. Uh, specifically, we're going to discuss the current state of the space situational awareness domain. But before we get into the questions, hi, Stefan. Thank you very much for being here today. Hi, Howell. Thank you very much for having me. Great. No problem. Okay. So as I mentioned, an increasingly important topic that a lot of people are focusing on. And I wondered if first you could just sort of ground us by giving a a brief overview of the current space debris environment in the different orbits. You know, if we just look at Leo, Mio, Geo, and where do you see most of the threat, actually the real threat emerging for, for satellite operators potentially? All right, so assuming that your uh, listeners already know what Leo Mio Chio means, um, I'm just going to take it from there. I hope so. <laughs> All right, so most of the objects that we currently uh, see up there are actually in the low Earth orbit, so in, in the Leo region. And um, it's becoming really uh, increasingly congested and making satellite operations uh, around the altitudes of between 500 to 800 kilometers really increasingly dangerous as well. And that means the satellites there actually have to perform regular collision avoidance maneuvers just to make sure that their assets remain safe. When, if we go up a bit farther to MIO and CHIO, so MIO is where the, the GNSS satellites are, and then CHIO is the, the point in the orbit uh, that doesn't move with respect to the Earth's surface. It's not so congested yet, even though, especially for CHIO, we have to say that there are a lot of objects already up there. And it's, of course, because of it, the fact that it doesn't move with respect to the Earth is a, a very precious orbit to have. Um, so, of course, we have to take special care there as well. Um, however, I think as with respect to LEO, it seems to to us, and uh, you know, I've been working at the European Space Agency, actually looking into how the different actors in space uh, behave with respect to the Space Debris Mitigation Guidelines, is that in CHEO, actually, they're behaving quite well because they know that they have to protect their own slots, right? While in Leo, it seems to to me personally, it's more of a, a tragedy of the commons, basically, where you just say, okay, you know, it's not my problem. Um, I'm just going to throw it in there. With regard to Mio, maybe as a last point, I think the danger there is basically the, the GTO, so the crossing orbits, which are today not well observed, and we don't know very well where they are, actually. Okay, interesting. Interesting. Yeah, it's, um, obviously the the incentives that different companies are actually under to to look after their systems and look after their debris uh, uh, change dramatically with the size of the systems, the the orbit. So that's a good overview. Thank you. And then in in terms of tracking this these assets, what sort of the different space based and ground based sensors or systems are, are used or of interest for space situational awareness, and um, what kind of resolutions are needed? Or, or can be provided in order to identify space debris? Right. So in terms of space-based uh, observational capabilities, there is really not that much uh, today. So I'm just going to focus on, on the ground-based solutions that are out there.
there right now. And I think the most prevalent in terms of technology are radar and, and optical, especially when it comes to uh, cataloging objects. Um, there are other technologies such as laser ranging. Um, however, you need to already know where the object is to be able to, to actually point your laser in the right direction, right? Most of the data that, that everyone, uh, especially uh, yeah, everywhere, but also here in Europe, is getting access to is actually coming from US Basecom. So that's uh, an American um, with a connection to the US military, actually. So they have a, a very large ground-based radar, but also optical network. So they're observing objects in, in Leo, Mio, and Chio, and they're providing this kind of information in the form um, of TLEs, so two-line elements, but also special ephemeris. Uh, special perturbation ephemeris. Um, so this is a very great source for, for everyone working in the industry uh, to understand what's the situation up there. However, we have to mention here that they are tracking roughly 45,000 objects and that, uh, you know, based on uh, or an existing uh, 1 million objects that are up there right now. So we as humanity, basically, we, we see less than 5% of the dangerous objects that are actually threatening our satellites. And this is something that we would like to change at Bioma. In terms of revolution, you were asking as well, um, it, it always depends for radar, especially it depends on the energy you put into the radars. Uh, because as you, as you might know, there is the, the um, radar uh, equation. That means um, you know, the more energy you put in, uh, the more signal you will get back. But the problem is that this signal gets weaker with distance and it gets weaker very fast. And that's not only distance, but also the size of the objects that you're looking at. So right now, the, the US Basecom catalog is more or less uh, tracking objects that are 10 centimeters and larger. Um, there are radars that are capable of going lower. Uh, I want to mention here uh, Tyra in Germany. They can see centimeter-level objects as well. However, they really have to put in a lot of energy and current geopolitical situation, spending that much energy is really not what you want to do. And at the same time, it also burns your instruments. So the, the wear and tear um, of putting uh, through so much energy is actually making it very costly for operations. Right. Excellent. Are, are there any other um, sort of pros and cons for the different types of sensors and systems used? Uh, yes. So if you're talking, if you're comparing, of course, ground-based to space-based, I think one big uh, pro for, for ground-based, obviously, is maintainability, right? So if, if uh, something is broken, uh, there is no issue and you just, you just fix it. On top of that, you have energy available on ground as well. Uh, you have generally a lot of heritage uh, that is, uh, has been around for, for many decades already. Um, but if you look at the cons from, from radar, for example, from ground-based, uh, as I said, as I mentioned before, is the distance to the target, right? So um, the farther away it is, the less signal you will obtain. So this is something... That, you know, especially if it's passing exactly uh, above you, that's easy to, to catch, right? But if it's somewhat far away, you know, you're, you're looking at it at a lower elevation angle, uh, it will already get much harder to catch it. If you look at optical uh, ground-based telescopes, they are very simple to set up. They're, they're quite cheap and they can really provide the data as well in, in no time, right? Because they're connected to, to the internet or connected to a computer, which is, uh, of course, another uh, con. Uh, if you're looking at space-based, because there you really need to make sure that you have uh, inter-satellite link, which uh, is doable, which is, uh, but you have to make sure, and this is what we're doing, that you do a lot of onboard processing already, right? So you're not going to be able to download all the images in, in full uh, resolution, but what we can do is we, we actually reduce those images down to just the 
small parts of interest for us. So really, actually, that's um, image coordinates of where the objects are that we see, plus some coordinates of stars as well. I also want to mention some pros uh, of being space-based, uh, especially for optical, um, of course, is to have a constant sun illumination angle, right? This is something that you don't have when you're on ground. You're also um, struggling with weather, uh, atmosphere. So there's a, a lot of time, actually, your telescope is not going to be uh, running. While in space, we can really achieve a near 100% beauty cycle. So what does that mean? Actually observing all the time. And on top of that, we don't have light pollution, uh, so we can achieve a very high sensitivity when we are in space. Excellent. Okay, that makes sense. You touched briefly on the work that you guys are carrying out at Fioma uh, in the the space situational awareness market today. You also mentioned earlier that there is a volume of data or sources of data available, and I believe there is plenty that can be accessed for free, although, albeit for a limited number of objects uh, compared to what is actually up there. So uh, within that environment, yeah, could you explain a little bit more about where Vioma sits and what what work you do and plan to do? Yeah, absolutely. So indeed, one thing is, you know, going from 45,000 objects to actually seeing and warning operators to to 1 million objects. But this is not the the only thing we're working on, basically, because what we want to achieve as well is help satellite operators actually avoiding unnecessary maneuvers. So how do we do that? Um, we do that by observing objects more often than is currently being done. So shrinking the uncertainty about the location where they are. Because every time you observe them again, you can, you can shrink the uncertainty of where they are. Plus, I also want to mention here that we have a very good understanding of the environment um, where satellites are flying. So we have near real-time calibrated atmospheric density models. What does that mean? We're actually taking uh, observations from satellites that are already in, in orbit um, and feed those into our models to get a better uh, understanding of the environment they're flying in. And, and all of this really helps us predicting better where objects are going to be. So uh, in, in terms of avoiding unnecessary maneuvers, that basically really means that we can tell satellite operators with our improved data and our improved predictions that they actually don't have to maneuver while maybe with previous available information, they would have to perform this costly maneuver, right? And and why are these maneuvers so costly? This is simply because you have to basically turn down your services that you usually provide during the time of doing the maneuver. And of course, you have to involve a lot of specialists also performing it. Anyway, though, um, the the SSA part for for us at Vioma is really only the foundation, right, for our automation solutions. So our vision really is to shrink operation centers to, to the tip of your finger, basically, make sure that you can operate your satellite from a tablet. I see. And to go back to the maneuver, you know, monitoring and when you need to give notifications and things, how much of a heads up can you potentially give satellite operators about a potential threat to an asset? And how accurate do you believe your assessments can be? Right. So we can give a heads up or an early warning already weeks before uh, an incident. Yeah. But indeed, this is not necessarily useful because, uh, of course, the uncertainties grow Right. I think what is much more important actually is reducing um, the time of still obtaining information right before taking decision to to do the maneuver. Right. And and this is where our solution comes in as well because we're screening um, all the objects a couple of times per day basically. So we can first of all predict when we can make an update. So giving uh, operators a heads up when the information next information data point will come in. Uh, plus, we don't have weather-related issues, right? So this is a very high reliability on providing this data. So the idea is to to provide a, a data point very shortly before 
the actual time of, of uh, predicted collision, right? And then give operators uh, the possibility to wait as long as possible to take the decision to do the maneuver. Because we believe that in most cases, there is actually no maneuver required, right? Because it's simply, once you have better data, um, you actually know that, that it's going to miss your satellite. Um, just to give you one more data point here, today's satellite operators are moving out of the way if the collision risk is higher than 1 in 10,000, right? And what that really means in a, in a very simplified way is that 9,999 out of these 10,000 maneuvers are actually not required. Right. <laughs> That's an enormous amount. I'm very surprised at that. But uh, yeah, just the nature of the lack of information or accuracy that we have in the in the domain. So that's interesting. Now, I, I know that there's a number of teams working on different aspects of space situational awareness. I was at um, the IAC in, in uh, Paris last week and there were several teams, you know, exhibiting there. So there's obviously a growing, there's a growing demand because of the amount of objects up there, but there's growth on the supply side as well, which is um, from a, a marketplace perspective, which is where we are at Satchis, this is great to see. But from you know your perspective at Vioma, do you see a need for greater coordination within this community to you know mature SSA systems and make it a more kind of trusted area of the space industry? Now there is no doubt that uh, bundling together observation data, fusing observation data from different places, will make any product more more accurate and also reliable. Uh, reliable, uh, of course. Uh, on top of that, we can also validate each other solution, which I think is something that is currently lacking because everyone is just relying on one single source of truth. So yes, indeed. I mean, there is no doubt that we, we have to collaborate with each other. I don't know exactly in terms of coordination, that sounds a bit like it's something from top down, which I don't think is, is required, basically, because we, we strongly believe that uh, all the solutions in the end will be somewhat distributed, uh, making them uh, much more uh, reliable. Also, in terms of, you know, if one system stops working all of a sudden, basically. So we, we, we really do believe in a, in a, in a distributed system. Uh, on top of that, I think what's really cool about our uh, industry in space in general is that we're, you know, we're all driven by a sense of urgency of solving this problem, right? So it's, it's much less competitiveness. I think it's much more uh, a collaboration that, that is intrinsic to everyone working in this domain. Yeah, that makes sense. And I think, um, the nature of what the satellite operator is trying to achieve by using your data, move a system so that there is an, an impact is by nature kind of collaborative because you're moving it out of the way of space debris or other existing satellite. You're trying not to create further debris that would damage other companies who may be your competitors' systems, you know. So, um, yeah, by nature, it's a, it's a safety for all. Yeah, help each other to help yourself, right? Yeah, absolutely. And, and on that, are there are such satellite operators, spacecraft operators, you know, able to use threat assessments to move their assets when they don't have propulsion systems on board who can maneuver or, or they've run out of propellant or the propulsion system isn't operating at the moment. Um, and how long might they have to act? You know, you, you mentioned the times you give them uh, before a potential conjunction, but that would vary by orbit as well, I'm guessing. Uh, that's correct. Yeah. So what they can perform are uh, differential drag maneuvers. Uh, what does that really mean? So they can rotate their satellite to achieve uh, a different area to mass ratio uh, because um, there is still a bit of atmospheric drag uh, left uh, where most satellites are flying right now. So if you change your, the area that is actually being perpendicular to your, um, to your uh, velocity vector, then you can really change uh, the resistance and you can actually slightly change the orbit towards your normal operations, uh, your normal uh, attitude that you would have. 
Um, of course, it depends uh, a lot on the shape factor of the satellite. So, you know, are the sides very long as compared to the front? Um, and as you say correctly, um, on the altitude of the orbit, because the lower you fly, uh, the more uh, drag uh, effects will, will be there on your orbit. Um, but indeed, so significant changes can be achieved. I think what's important here, again, um, you know, it's not so much how early you have to do it, but how well can you predict where it's going to be, right? So if you can say, we're fine with missing an object by 10 meters, then of course you can, you know, you can wait really, really long until before it happens. But if you say, okay, we want to make sure that we miss it by 200, 300 meters, then of course you will have to start quite early. Um, it's actually a similar problem for satellites that have electric propulsion available only. Um, they also have to, to make sure that they start thinking, um, you know, hours, maybe even days before uh, closest approach itself. Right. That's, that's very interesting. And, um, are there any recommendations that you would like to give satellite builders from, you know, from the awareness of getting ready for space situational awareness and being, being able to, um, carry out the right maneuvers and understand the data that you're being provided and things. Is there anything, any advice you'd like to give them in the early stages of a mission? Right. I mean, do consider space debris and related additional requirements very, very early in the process. Um, of course, you know, the later you start uh, trying to adapt the design um, to, to these kind of risks, which are very real, uh, the more expensive it will get for you, of course. Um, also, I think, um, so ESA is actually going towards um, index an index that you know tells your mission on on what's the footprint that you have on the space environment right that's taking into account the risk um, of colliding but also the risk of having an explosion on board basically so if your payload permits really try to avoid the most congested regions right just go somewhere where the risk of collision is much smaller that can be just you know going to to maybe 1000 kilometers instead of going to six, 600 kilometers altitude so if your payload allows it Try to avoid uh, the congested regions. Okay, brilliant. So, start from these assumptions. There are going to be potential for you to impact something. There could there could be debris affecting you. Start like it. Don't don't build a satellite assuming it's never going to happen. Right. Yeah, unfortunately, unfortunately. Yeah. So, just to give you also one more uh, update here. So, um, since the dawn of the space age, there have been more than five hundred uh, explosion events happening in space. Um, so, this is something that is it's really real, right? It's Collisions are much uh, less frequent. Um, there have been so far four confirmed collisions in space. Um, nevertheless, um, it's it's getting uh, more and more risky. Uh, then I, I was also interested in how the uh, data that that is being collected and provided, and the systems that are being developed, can have an impact on the the other aspects of of a satellite mission and and its administration. So interesting aspect of this. So towards you know the insurance for for space assets. So do you see insurance industry maturing and offering schemes that spacecraft operators can adopt based on SSA assessments that can be provided? And, you know, is this industry ready for using that sort of data for transforming their operations in this way? Right. So it's not going to surprise you that, of course, we're talking to uh, the big reinsurers that also have um, space uh, insurances. And indeed, so what we see really is them towards really taking this problem seriously. So um, today, space insurance generally covers any any loss of satellite um, in, in operations in space, right? And that can be from space debris, that can be from a, a faulty battery, from a faulty uh, payload, whatever. Um, and this is, I think, because of two reasons. This is um, because A, space debris is still a small part of the overall failures uh, that you can see in space. And secondly, 
often it's not clear what is the actual cause of a failure, right? Because sometimes you just lose uh, communication and, and that's it. You don't know exactly what happened. But with with a better pool of data that we will have uh, in the near future and with, with better modeling capabilities as well, this will change because we can predict or we can you know, also tell you what was really the cause um, of this. So what we think or what we see the space insurance is going towards is a model um, where you, if you actively consider space debris and you actively perform avoidance maneuvers and you react to space debris, your insurance payments will actually be lower. So there is a real financial incentive as well to behave uh, behave responsibly in space. Yeah, well that that makes sense. <laughs> Think about it from the the point of view of traffic in on the road. If you couldn't see out the windscreen to see the other traffic, then you should pay more for insurance. I think <laughs> so. Yeah, I think that's that's a very accurate. Uh, that's actually a very accurate uh, description, even of space. Great, that's fantastic. So, a, f- a final couple of questions. I think just to um, just to just to get back into the technical aspects of it and the, the hardware and software, with this emerging environment on the um, administration side and the the different uh, combination of data systems, and you mentioned the, the use of ground based. Um, uh, components and, and and hardware. What combination of sensors do you see in the future has the best potential to give a satellite operator, for example, a complete or a, as complete as possible of a picture of the environment in which they're working? Um, indeed, it will be a, a combination of um, radar and telescopes as well, um, because they give you a different set of data. So. Um, radar generally gives you range and range rate, so how far away is the object and, and how how is how fast is it moving uh, with respect to you. Um, and telescopes give you angular information of where the object is. Right on top of that, um, radars are generally um, very good in um, spotting objects that are of metallic nature, um, so they they will give you um, more signal back. Um, while they're not so good in, in seeing non-metallic objects, um, on the other hand. Uh, Telescopes can see bright objects um, that can be, you know, even paint flakes, right, um, which would not be possible to be caught by, by radar, for example. So it will be definitely a combination of, of these two types. Um, I think if you want to go to even more precise orbit determination, you will also want to have access to, to laser ranging uh, information. Um, so what we are actually working on now for our second generation of, of satellites is, because the first one is only going to carry a, a telescope, is also considering radar or lidar, um, so kind of technologies that are capable of um, measuring the range and the range rate. The the only problem with these kind of technologies is that they are generally limited in range, right? While we can actually see from Leo, um, Leo to Leo, Leo to Mio, and Leo to Chio as well with optical, this will be much harder to achieve with um, any any kind of technology that can do range and range rate in space, right? Because we don't have access to uh, unlimited source of energy there. Right, thank you. That's a good good summary. And uh, finally, then back to well, to finish on Vioma and and your obviously your personal um, ambitions and excitement about the the company as well. What role do you see Vioma MOOPs playing in the European space industry or global space industry moving forward? So, what are you? Where do you see yourselves? Where, what are you most excited about in the company? Right, I, I think we really see ourselves as a supporter and also an enabler of satellite operations and enabler of you know whole space industry and and we really want to do this by just making operations safer but also by making it much more affordable um, because 
right now, you know, go to market for new brilliant ideas of having some some payloads in space, it, it just can take years, right? And it will take so much effort for for people that have no experience or no network um, of actually being able able of pulling this off, right? And we really want to make this much simpler uh, by providing this kind of uh, you know operation center um, as a service, basically, right? Uh, satellite operations as a service. Um, so we really want to contribute to a growing space economy, um, but also, of course, while keeping this critical infrastructure safe. I think if we can do this, then we have accomplished our mission. Right. Fantastic. Thank you. Well, best of luck uh, in accomplishing that. And that's a great place to sum up, I think. Thank you very much, Stefan. That was uh, it was really great talking to you today. I think um, you shared some great insights on uh, what space situational awareness actually is, why it's important, how objects are detected, how satellites and systems move out of the way and when they should, when they shouldn't, and um, what satellite operators need to think about from kind of day one of mission development in order to, in order to adjust for the environment in which they are going to be you know, hopefully operate it and assume everything else goes well. And yeah, great to, to hear about the plans uh, that Vioma has as well. So on behalf of, you know, all our listeners at Space Industry Podcast, just wanted to say thank you very much for being with us here today. Thank you, Howell, and thank you for your work as well. I think this is super important to, you know, spread the word and make sure that people understand the risks of uh, satellite operations because today, uh, you know, most people don't understand that there are services that every one of us uses daily at risk of being lost, uh, you know, for for good if we have a catastrophic uh, event in space. So thanks a lot. Oh, you're, you're welcome. And, and yeah, this is to everybody listening, you know, this is very much an area that benefits from everybody engaging with and being involved in. So um, please, please do look into this area and see what you can what you can find out about what's important to your your industry, your your missions, your products and services. And as always, we will share some further information on Vioma's work and products and services uh, in the show notes and you can find also find details of everything on satsearch.com and on the company's website and um, just wanted to say thank you very much to all the listeners out there for spending time with us today we'll be back with you soon on the space industry podcast thank you thank you for listening to this episode of the space industry by satsearch i hope you enjoyed today's story about one of the companies taking us into orbit we'll be back soon with more in-depth behind the scenes insights from private space businesses in the meantime, you can go to satsearch.com for more information on the space industry today or find us on social media if you have any questions or comments. To stay up to date, please subscribe to our weekly newsletter and you can also get each podcast on demand on iTunes, Spotify, the Google Play Store or whichever podcast service you typically use.